the opportunity to be in your house this morning. We thank you that, uh, that you are alive, that you're risen, that you are on the throne, Father God, that you are engaged and that you can and you desire to intervene in our lives, Lord. Let our faith grow this morning. Let us seek after you first and foremost, Lord God. Let us not be distracted by the things that are going on in this world and around us. Let us understand that if we want to have impact, if we want to see change, if we want hope, Lord, it can only be found in you, Lord God. As we remember today what happened in this nation 15 years ago, Father God, we know that the only answer is faith in you. You're the only one that has hope. You're the only one that can bring change. You're the only one that can restore those who have lost, Lord loved ones, friends, and family, Father God. Remind us that we have a responsibility as Americans to protect our nation, but there are Christians all over the world that need protection that only you can provide, Lord. We came to seek you, Lord, and you said that you came to seek and to save that which was lost, Lord. Change our perspective. Open our eyes. Let us have ears to hear and eyes to see the things that you want to speak and the things that you want to show, Lord God. Let us not come into this place and go out of this place without being changed, without hearing from you, Lord God, without reaching out and actually touching you. Have your way. We love you. We need you now more than we ever have before. We love you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, amen. Praise the Lord. You can, uh, you can be seated. <clears throat> so we are uh, in our series, The Essentials. And we're in week number three. We started with all glory uh, belongs to God alone three weeks ago. And uh, what we learned is that everything that is right, everything that is good, everything that is blessed, it comes from God and it is for the glory of God. When we try to take that glory and give it unto ourselves or to our friends, our family, whoever we want to give that glory to, we've misrepresented, we've, we've taken something that belongs to God. Last week, for those of you that were here, Raymond preached on sola gratia, which is salvation is a gift from God that he's offered by grace alone. Last week, grace alone was our, our second sola. Raymond said, and I quote, our salvation from the wrath of God, our deliverance from hell, is because of something good in God and not because of anything good in us or anything that we can do. I read his notes. I know what he said. He says the gift of grace, it has nothing to do with you. You can't earn it. You didn't have a part in it. It's simply something that God wanted to bless us with and gave, us, gave unto us, the grace of God. He shared Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Salvation is the ultimate display of grace, giving something to somebody that they do not deserve. He says that he gave it to us while we were still sinners, not while we were on the road to being righteous, not while we were changing our behavior, but while we were still sinners, the gift of grace, by grace alone, God has uh, bestowed upon us. So what a blessing these first couple of weeks. And this morning, we're going to be looking at sola fide, or by faith alone. Matter of fact, there it is. Faith alone. So we had all glory belongs to God alone, and we said that as a church we wanted to start there because God has done some things here. Whether it's watching people be elevated to ministry, watching new people come into the body, watching our kids be able to quote scripture and love the Lord and be asking about being baptized. God has done a lot in this particular body, but all the glory belongs to God. It's not about us. It's not about anybody in particular in this church. It belongs to the Lord. By his grace, he's done these things. As we look at faith alone this morning... Uh, we started this by telling you that Martin Luther, part of the Catholic Church, 
in the uh, 95 Theses, he began to challenge some of the things that were being taught, some of the way that the church was being led, uh, some of the, the doctrine that people were, were uh, buying into and believing. <clears throat> Much of what he had to say, he said this about sola fide or uh, faith alone. He said, this is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls, right? What we're going to talk about this morning, Martin Luther, when he makes this break away from the Catholic church and he says, listen, we've got to deal with these, these issues. He says this one, faith alone is the doctrine by which the church will either stand or fall, while we will either honor God or misrepresent God. So much of his thesis was focused on the doctrine and selling of indulgences. If you've ever heard of this, strap in. This is uh, something I took from a website, and again, I want to I share this as, as we get into this message. We, we, we looked at this series from Martin Luther, the Protestant Reformation, why we do church the way that we do, uh, came from, from this kind of breaking away. But Martin Luther, he wasn't trying to hate on the Catholic Church. He was just saying, listen, we got to live by the word. You'll see here soon, by scripture alone, not by man's interpretation or something we want to add to it. I know plenty of Catholics and a lot of great ones, a lot that love the Lord and know the Lord and are spiritually filled with, uh, with his Holy Spirit. So this isn't to say that, look, all Catholics are evil and they're going to hell. I don't believe that. However, any church, the reason why we're doing this in our church is because any church if you get away from these principles and these essentials, you can find yourself going away and leading people away from Christ. So this is from a, a Catholic website, and it's talking about some of these things. It says that baptism removes all stain of original sin and all eternal punishment for actual sins committed and all temporal punishments or, or earthly temporary punishments for those sins. The sacrament of penance removes only the eternal punishment for sin, and it does not entirely remit the temporal punishment for our sin. We must do penance, more than the sacramental penance imposed by the priest, in order to remit the temporary punishment for our sins. We can do that in purgatory, or excuse me, we can do that in this life, or if we fail to do that, we will have a chance to do it in purgatory after we die, if we die in a state of grace. But if the church has, excuse me, but the church has an incredible treasure of graces at her disposal, built up through the superabundant merits of the Blessed Virgin and the saints. Our membership of the communion of the saints entitles us to call on this treasury of graces. This is what the church calls indulgences. So this doctrine of indulgences, basically what it means is that there are things that you can do, things that you have to do in order to earn right standing with God and forgiveness of sins. Not only can you do it in this life, things like penance, things like Hail Marys, things like confession, things like baptism and catechism, all of these are going into what you are earning, this right standing for the sins that you've committed. There are eternal sins, and then there are temporary sins that you will be judged for and have to pay punishment for. And what this, what this doctrine of indulgences says is that you can, you can use these things to pay for those sins, and if you don't do a good enough job and you don't pay for all of them, you go to a place called purgatory, and you can there pay for more of your sins before you enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not only... Are you able to do that for yourself, but you're able to do that for others? If you had a friend, family member, a parent that died, and you know they're in purgatory, you believe they're in purgatory, paying for their sins, you can buy indulgence letters from the church 
that will be automatically given to the account of whoever it is that you're paying for so that they can spend less time in purgatory and go to heaven. Can you see how these types of doctrines about something added to faith, something else that you have to do, something else that you have to earn, can make people invest into the church, give into the church, labor for the church, volunteer for the church, because there's this system of earning. Listen to Martin Luther, the 95 Thesis. It was literally 95 statements he made, nailed it to the door of the church and said, deal with these things. Deal with them. Look at the scriptures and tell me what we're going to do to deal with these things. This is just four of them. Number 21 of his 95 Theses says this. Thus, those indulgence preachers are in error who say that a man is absolved from every penalty and saved by papal indulgences. One of his theses was, listen, anybody who preaches and says that you can be saved and you can be forgiven by buying these indulgences, you are in error. It's wrong. Stop saying that. Stop preaching it. It's not biblical. Number 22 of his 95, it says, they preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. It's crazy. It sounds crazy, but all of us, every church has the potential to go in a direction that God doesn't want us to if we don't stand on the word of God. Martin Luther, he's part of the church. He's part of the clergy, and he says, listen, what's wrong with us when we say, listen, the basket's about to go around, and if you came to give an extra offering today for your cousin who's in purgatory, as soon as that money hits the basket, their soul flies out of purgatory, and they go into heaven. I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said, I, I, my mother, my father, my sister, my brother, whoever it is that I've lost, I'm just, I want to know if they went to heaven. Imagine if I was to tell you, look, if you just give, You just, come on, basket's going to go around. And you know what? After you're done giving for them, you know you're going to end up in the same place. You better start giving for yourself too. Martin Luther, he couldn't take it anymore. Number 32 of his 95 says this, those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Imagine somebody comes up to you, what's wrong with you? Your life isn't sin, you need to change. I thought you were saved. And you pull out a stack of letters. Look at what I bought. I'm good. It sounds crazy, but we're not talking about some hypothetical system in some movie. This is the reality. The Bible says that a little bit of leaven does what? Leavens the whole lump. A little bit of yeast causes that whole uh, uh, ball of dough to rise. So if the enemy can get into the church and just, just, let's just do something with indulgences, it destroys the church. The last one I want to share is the last one that Martin Luther shared, number 95 of his 95 theses. Says this, and thus, be confident of entering into heaven through many tribulations rather than through the false security of peace. He told the church, look. You want to get to heaven, understand that it's going to be hard, it's going to hurt, you're going to have tribulations from the day you come into a relationship with God until the day you die and go into heaven. If you think that you can just come and serve in the church, if you think that you can just go to confession, if you think you can buy indulgences and you'll have peace to live in this world, and you do feel that peace, you've missed it. That's not the reality. You get into heaven through tribulations. It's going to be hard. You can't buy your way out of those tribulations, and you can't buy somebody else's way out of those tribulations. 
The Bible says it like this in Acts chapter 14, 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. Say faith. faith. Say faith. faith. Continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Endure. Walk through your faith. There's going to be tribulations. I swear. I, I can't even say it because I wouldn't like it. But I want to say I would love it if I could just get out of all tribulations with dollars. <laughs> with confession. I'll set up a confession booth right here. If that could solve all our problems. We cannot purchase or work our way out of something or someone else's way out of tribulation. If you have entered into the grace of God through faith alone, you will be resurrected and immediately go into the presence of God upon your earthly death. That's what the Bible teaches. When you die, if you are saved, if you have a relationship with God, if you have entered into that grace through faith, when you die, you will get a resurrected body and you will enter into the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says this, We are confident. We are sure. There is no doubt. We are pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We are not going to purgatory. We are not going to time out. We are not going to a state of limbo. If you're saved, you go to heaven and you be with the Lord. So how did the church get to that point? How do churches today get to that point? Why did Martin Luther have to write these things? Why did we have to cancel everything on the calendar? Why am I so concerned with making sure that we get this right? Part of it is because our fellowship, I believe in getting involved. I believe in doing something. I believe in laboring. I believe in showing up. I believe in giving. I believe in using your talents. I believe in, in praying for people. I believe in doing all those things, but it can so easily get to a point where we, what you might hear is if you do these things, you will be in better standing with God. If you give, you'll be closer to God. If you share, if you show, he loves you more. It's so easy to misunderstand what the word of God says, what pastors typically preach. And this is one of the scriptures. The Catholic Church stands on uh, indulgences and works. A lot of it comes from James chapter 2, verse 14, what I'm going to share with you. In James, it says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, say faith, but does not have works. Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. As you continue to go through James, it gets pretty challenging. Faith without works is dead. What good is it if somebody comes to you saying, I'm starving, and you say, hey, you know what, just go and be filled. No, give them some food. Do some work. You can see how this becomes a challenge. Can faith by itself save? We're going to go through some things this morning, and First, I want to share with you is that I believe works are the response of faith that has been activated. Works are not part of your faith. Works are not in a partnership and intertwined with your faith. If you have faith, if your faith has been activated, works are the natural response from that faith. It's an inevitable product of true faith. 
works. If you have real faith, if you have true faith, if your faith has been activated, and you'll see what I believe that means here as we, as we go on this morning, works are going to be what's produced from that. There's, no, there's nothing else that can be produced. I'm trying to think, man. I'm not, a, I'm not a chemist. Maybe one of these high schoolers can remember what it is, right? So we breathe in oxygen, and then it goes into us, and we do all kinds of stuff, and it comes out as what? Carbon dioxide? CO2, right? Nothing else can come out but CO2. Does that make sense? CO2 is not part of the oxygen, and it's not part of what happens inside our body. It's what's produced every time we take that oxygen in. Faith and works is the same thing. When you have faith, what will naturally be produced is works. But they're separate. My issue this morning is having too much to share, so I'm going to be moving through it, get the CD or take some good notes this morning. I want to see if we can get some clarity. So what I'm going to start with is just a a series of, of scriptures I just want to share and see if we can wrestle with this idea of what is faith? What is faith alone? Jerry, can you put that one back up? Faith alone, sola fide. First is Romans chapter 5, verse 1. says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It said a lot there. Listen, we're justified by faith. What it means to be justified or just in right standing with God, it says that we are justified by faith. Not faith plus something, not faith in doing something. You get right with God by faith. And it says this, you've been given access by that faith into the grace. Last week, what Raymond preached on was the grace of God, grace alone. You have to think of this, your faith is like the key that opens the door into the grace of God. And then what happens after that? Listen, we've been given access by faith into the grace in which we stand. It's talking to Christians. If you're in the grace of God, you're already standing there. You got into that grace by using the key of faith, opening the door and walking into grace. And then what does it say? We stand there and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The first Sunday that I preached, I shared that all glory belongs to God. You using the faith to enter into grace gives glory to God when you stand right with him. God is glorified by saying, look what I did for him. Look how I saved them. Look how I love them. Look how I care for them. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It says, listen, if it were by works, you would be able to say, look what I did. Look where I went. Look how much I gave. Look how I prayed. Look how I sacrificed. Look how I spent my time. If you were to do the same thing, you could be saved and you could have the grace of God. But that's not what Ephesians says. You've been saved through faith. Not of yourself. This is a gift of God. And it's not of works. So you cannot boast. The greatest of Christians that you know or that you've heard of or that we look up to they're no different than you and I, the least of Christians. Why? Because everything is by grace and through faith. It has nothing to do with us. Those who have stadium events full of people, those who have ministries that are world-renowned, those who have the best-selling albums, it's all the same. It's not by their works. It's by grace and it's by faith. Jesus says... Those who are the least will be the greatest in the kingdom. 
This is Romans 1.16. All those Lecrae Reach Record fans, I heard you, Junior. 116. Romans 116 says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek or the Gentiles like you and I. For in it, in the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The gospel is a story of faith and what faith does. Not a story of what you do or what I do. We live by faith. Romans 3.21 says this, Now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and by the prophets, even the righteousness of God, listen to this, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. Faith in Jesus Christ is what makes us righteous. For there is no difference For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, made right with God, freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, these scriptures, it just says it over and over again, that it's about God, it's about what he's doing, it's about his righteousness, it's all about our faith entering into the blood of Christ, entering into the salvation of God through grace. A couple more, Romans 3.28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to read anything. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to tithe. You don't have to offer. You've heard me say this before. It'd be much easier to say, look, you want to go to heaven, tithe. But what this says is you are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Just because God said, this is my law, this is what you should do, this is what I want you to do, this is what I've called you to do, this is what I've commanded you to do, even if you don't, If you truly have put your faith in Christ, you have been justified and made right with God. But like I said earlier, if you truly have been justified and put your faith in Christ, those works should be the natural response. CO2 should be coming out. The Bible says, Jesus says, I haven't lost any. People ask me all the time, do you believe once saved, always saved? Or do you believe that you can be saved and lose your salvation? I say, I believe once saved, always saved. But I believe also that a lot of people think they're saved and they're not. A lot of people say they're saved, but there ain't no carbon dioxide coming out. (laughs) Bible says that you'll know them by their fruit. He says that a good tree can only bear good uh, fruit and a bad tree can only bear bad fruit. If there's no fruit, what kind of tree are you? How can you say you're connected to the vine, you're connected to Christ, but nothing Christ-like is coming out of you? That doesn't make any sense. Romans chapter 4 verse 5 says this, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. I want to read that again. To him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. It's saying, how blessed is it that you can come into the church, put your faith in Christ, and God say, you know what? You haven't done anything. You may never do anything, but I'm going to impute righteousness into your life, into your account. I'm not going to charge you for sin. I'm going to bless you as sinless like my son was. Apart from works. I love the whole counsel of the word of God. Because if you're really reading and you're really praying, you won't be offended when I tell you, get off your butt and do something. Because I'm not telling you that's how you get saved. I'm not telling you that's how to look better in church. I'm telling you if you're saved, let's have some CO2 coming out. Do something, please. But you're already blessed apart from those works. You already have, if you're saved this morning, you already have everything that you could ever want. You've got salvation. You've got eternity. If you were to, like Mary said, be on your way somewhere today and get hit by a drunk driver and die, you would go instantly into the presence of God. Once you know you have that, serve the Lord, please. Romans 4.19. And not being weak in faith... He did not, this is speaking of Abraham, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, what God had promised, he was also able to perform and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Faith is about belief. Faith is about saying, you know what, God, I know who you are, I know what you've promised, and I believe you can do it. I don't care if, you, if I'm 100 years old, if you say I'm going to have a baby, I'm going to have a baby. I don't care if my wife is past the age of being able to get pregnant, if you say that we are going to be the ones that produce a seed that turns into as many as the, the stars or the sand on the seashore, I believe in you more than I believe in my inabilities. I have faith in who you are and what you've said. Who I am and what I am and I'm not capable of has nothing to do with it. Our faith gives glory to God, and here's why. Faith is the truth of Christ. That's what faith really is. It's, it's literally the truth of the Christ. In Hebrews 11, it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of what you can't see. It really means Jesus. He's the substance of what everybody was hoping for, a physical Messiah to come, and he's the evidence of what you can't see right now, which is when you get saved and your life changes and transformed and you're healed on the inside and your broken heart is restored, that evidence of what you can't see is Jesus, alive and well, risen from the grave and sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. So why does it give glory to God when you have faith? Because what you're saying is, I know who he is and I believe in him and I trust him and I'm confident in him. Listen to these statements. Matthew 9, 22, a woman was bleeding. Jesus turned around when he saw her. He said, be of good cheer, my daughter. Your faith, say faith. faith. Your faith has made you well, and the woman was made well from that hour. What is he saying? Your belief in me is what made you well. The fact that you know I can do what I promised, which is heal, is what made you well. He's not talking about her work to get to him her faithfulness and consistency of continuing to show up and continuing to seek. He's saying your faith, your understanding of who I am and what I do, that's what made you well. Mark 10, 52, a blind man, Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. 
Same thing, he's telling them, you're not, you haven't been healed, you can't see just because you worked really hard and you earned it and you deserved it, because you know who I am, you believe in what I can do, and you've come to me, that's what made you well. In every area of our lives this morning, it can be physical like this woman bleeding, it can be blindness like this, this man who was blind, but ultimately it's the 99.9% .9 of the other areas of our life, if you trust Jesus and you know who he is and you stand firm upon his promises, your faith will make you well. Same thing with the lepers that came to him in Luke 17, 19. He said to him, arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. He healed 10, nine of them took off, one of them came back, and he said, listen, in this world, I do a lot of healing, I do a lot of touching, I do a lot of forgiving, I do a lot of helping, I do a lot of blessing. Everybody that has anything, it came from me. Everything that's good comes from me. But you, your faith has made you well because you came back to acknowledge who I am and what I do. You've made me Lord. I'm just somebody that provides for everybody else. I'm just somebody that gives breath into everybody else's life. I'm just somebody that keeps them safe as they do whatever they want to do. But if they don't acknowledge me as Lord and Savior, they don't have faith. They haven't activated the faith. One out of ten came back and he said, hey, you, your faith has made you well. You used to get a paycheck before you were saved. Who do you think gave that to you? You didn't have faith. You didn't have your faith in Christ, but you still got that check. You had a wife before you got saved. You had kids before you got saved. Who gave all that to us? He did. But our faith hasn't been activated. We haven't given him our lives and told him we love you and we thank you for it. Faith is something that has to be activated. Faith is Christ. It's believing in him. It's believing that he's able to do all that he says he can do. How many of you this morning, I'll actually ask for a show of hands, but think before you reach that hand up. How many of you are persuaded that Jesus is who he says he is and that he can do what he says he can do. Be careful. Be careful. Because we can go down the line. If that ain't how you act in your marriage, raise it halfway up. If that ain't how you act in your giving, raise it halfway up. If that ain't how you act in all these other areas, raise it halfway up. But if you've truly been persuaded, you know what, he is who he says he is, he can do what he says he can do. He'll, he'll meet every need. He'll answer every prayer. I'm persuaded, fully persuaded. 2 Timothy 1.12 says this, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. There's probably not a better scripture, if you ask me, in all the Bible. Timothy, in 2 Timothy, Paul's writing, it says, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I'm not ashamed to come to church every week. I'm not ashamed to give my, res my resources and my finances. I'm not ashamed to spend my life with this group of people. You know why? Because I know in whom I have believed. I know him. I don't know of him. I don't, I don't know stories about him. I don't believe stories that I've heard from others about him. I know him. I know who I believe in. I know him personally and intimately. I'm not ashamed. I don't have to be ashamed of anything I do in the kingdom because I know him. And then he says this, and on top of that, I'm persuaded that he is able. I'm persuaded. I spend a lot of time away from my kids, but I'm persuaded that he is able to show them how much I love them and to keep them safe. 
I put my wife through a lot of stuff, but I'm persuaded that he's able to hold us together and to meet her needs when I don't meet her needs. That's what he talks about when he says faith. It's not about us and what we can do. It's just being persuaded that he's able. He's able. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says, it's Christ who died, and furthermore, he is also risen. He's even at the right hand of God, and he makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Because if those things can't separate us, let's buy some indulgences, right? Let's pay for it now so that we don't go through those things. But that's not what Paul says in Romans. He says, who can separate us? It's written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities nor powers, things present or things to come, height or depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, I'm persuaded. Nothing can separate me. There's no tribulation. There's no difficulty. I don't care if it's, if it's death. I don't care if a child dies. I don't care if my spouse dies. I don't care what happens if I lose everything. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing can take my eternity away from me. Nothing can take my salvation away from me. Because it's not dependent upon me or my emotions or my feelings. It's dependent upon him and who he says he is and what he says he can do. That's when you get an understanding. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith and not by sight. When you've been completely persuaded, you can walk according to what you know instead of according to what you see. When you've been completely persuaded, you don't look at your difficulties and say, this is what I see and this is what I believe. You still see those same difficulties and they still hurt and they're still hard, but you're not walking by what you see. Say, I'm persuaded, I know you're there. I know what you said. I know that whatever I'm going through, your word says that it will work out for good for me because I love you and I'm called according to your purposes. I know that this is a season just like the last season I was in. I know that even my difficulty may be, be a blessing to somebody else right now. I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded. Man, I pray for people to be persuaded. This is John chapter 65. Verse 63, and Jesus is trying to persuade people. Now, when we think of the word persuaded, we think of like sometimes being convinced of something. Like, remember that one time you got persuaded to get involved in that pyramid scheme? That ain't what I'm talking about. If you just give this much and you just do this and you come under me, but then there'll be like 27 people under you and you won't do anything and you'll make a million dollars. That ain't the persuasion I'm talking about. Being persuaded by the truth is something completely different. Somebody say Amen. Jesus is trying to tell people, he's like, look, you put your faith in the church. You put your faith in the priest. You put your faith in the system. And I'm trying to tell you that I'm the bread of life. I'm trying to tell you that my blood is what covers you. I'm trying to tell you that putting your faith and belief in me is what changes everything. He's trying to persuade them to understand and receive the truth. In John chapter 6, verse 63, it says this. 
It is the Spirit. This is Jesus talking to you. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by the Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Remember I said earlier that once saved, always saved, but many who think they're saved are not saved? You can be taught by someone and be a disciple, be disciplined, be taught by them, but never really believe, which means you can walk away from them forever and go your own direction. But if you were really saved and truly believed, you'll be like the prodigal son that has to come home. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Listen to this. But Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is a statement of a man who's been persuaded. He said, look, I'm not even going to tell you we don't want to go. What I'm going to say is, where can we go? This is hard. I gave up my business for this. I walked away from my family for this. I got a wife, Peter would say. My mother-in-law is sick. But here's the reality. Where else can I go? You have the words of life. I've never heard anything like the things that I hear coming out of your mouth on the daily basis. You have the words of life. You're breathing life into me. Where can I go? And he says, on top of that, not just from what I hear from you and what I receive from you, I've come to believe and know. I am fully persuaded that you're the Christ. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You are the Messiah. You're the Savior of my soul. You're the forgiver of my sins. You're the healer of everything that has been damaged in me. You're the restorer of everything that's been broken. You're the reconciler of everything that has been uh, divided in my life. Where else can I go? I'm fully persuaded. You are the Christ and I know it. What can separate us from the love of God? What is it that makes it hard for you to be completely persuaded? Text messages from your pastor? Requests for giving? If anything can really get you that upset and make you struggle that much in your walk or in your faith that I'm doing or that your friends or family are doing, then we haven't really focused on grace alone, faith alone, glory to God alone. This is an individual thing between you and God, and we do it collectively as the church. So I'm going to close with this this morning. This story, to me, is just an amazing story that teaches us how to enter into the grace of God through faith alone. Remember, like I said earlier, you have this key, and it's called faith. And it will unlock the door and open it for you. But if you don't use it, you can't enter into the grace. I can't open it for you. I can't open my, my door and say, come on, guys. Come with me. Imagine every person on the planet has their own door, and they have their own key. It's got to activate it. This is the story. John chapter 3, I'm going to read to you guys. Go ahead and turn there. I want, actually, you know what? You know what? Just write it down if you're taking notes. Don't turn. I want you to just focus up here and try to picture the story for yourself. Your own little mini movie going on in your head right now. 
John chapter 3 says this, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Real quick, like I said earlier when I started about the Catholic Church, about the Coptic Orthodox Christian Church, about all these other churches, it's not... It's not that you can't find God there. It's not that there aren't strong believers there. It's that we got to be careful about a little, a little leaven leavening the whole lump. This was like a Catholic priest, a Coptic priest. This is a Pharisee, and he's a teacher in the church, and he comes to Jesus by night because he's like, hey, that's what I do, but I really want to know you, right? So he comes to him, and he says, look, we know you're from God. Jesus says this in verse 3. They're having this conversation at night. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can, I, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's saying there is a spiritual part of salvation and being born again that you can't describe, you can't explain. And no matter how long you try or how hard you try, it's like trying to explain where the wind came from and where it went. I felt it. I know something happened, but it's very difficult for me to express it, right? That's what Jesus is saying about salvation. And we think we're going to be able to give people three points on how to get saved. He says this, verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? That's impossible. We spend all our time searching the scriptures and teaching. What do you mean? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know. Listen, when you read your Bibles, this is a giant W. It's a big W. So Jesus is talking about himself. When he says, we speak what we know, he's saying, me, the Son, me, the Father, and me, the Holy Spirit. That's why it's capital W. He's telling Nicodemus, you're supposed to be our representative. You're supposed to be the priest. You're supposed to be the teacher, and you don't know this stuff? Listen, we, the Trinity, we speak what we know, and we testify what we have seen, and you don't receive our witness? I'm God telling you the truth, and you don't want to listen to me? Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, and that is the Son of Man who was in heaven. And as Moses lifted, up, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Stop there real quick. That's verse 18. Listen to what Jesus is describing. He's saying, look, I didn't come down to condemn people. They're already condemned. You're already damned. You're already going to hell no matter what you do. What I came down for is so that you would believe in me, that you would use the key that I gave you to enter into my grace. 
He's saying, look, if you don't use the key, it's not like I'm going to damn you to hell. You're already in the damn section. <laughs> I don't have to damn you. You're already there. I came to tell you, listen, believe in me. Trust in me. Use the key that I gave you. And if you open the door, if you use that faith and you open the door and you walk into my grace, you'll see. He says, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. You want, a, you want a good reason to baptize? Because there's water. We look for all this extra stuff. Some of y'all need to get baptized. If you read through the scriptures, Philip got taken into the middle of a desert road. An Ethiopian eunuch was there. He told him who Jesus was. He told him about baptism. The Ethiopian eunuch says, hey, I see a puddle of water outside. Can I be baptized? You know what, you know what Philip told him? If you really believe. Some of you, if you really believe, we need to get baptized. My bad. Extra message. <laughs> Says that he was baptizing there because there was much water. They came and they were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. This is what we've been talking about on Wednesday night in our Bible study. Praise the Lord. He had not yet been thrown into prison. And then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi... He who was with you beyond the Jordan, big H means he's talking about who? Praise the Lord. He who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you testified, behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. They're telling John he's got a few disciples. And the church comes to him and says, hey man, listen, we don't even like you, but we, like, we, we don't like him more than we don't like you. So listen, you're baptizing over here. That, you know that one that you talked about? He's on the other side baptizing a lot of people. They're all going to him now. They're not coming to you. Right? John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. What do you, you know what he said? He said grace alone. He said whatever he's doing, it's not because of him, and whatever I'm doing is not because of me. It only comes from above, which means it's a gift of grace. He says grace alone. Then he says in verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, he stands and hears him and he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who's of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the spirit by measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Just picture that scene. 
the Pharisees, the leaders come to John and they want to have this conversation. And John literally describes everything that Paul said and everything that Jesus said. He said, look, I'm in the process of decreasing. There's nothing I have to offer. The Messiah is here. If you receive him and what he has to say, you'll be saved and you'll have life. If you don't, you are going to go to hell. He says, it's not about me. It's all about putting your faith in the Son of God. By faith alone will you be saved. It's not my baptism. It's not your church. It's not our church. It's by faith alone will you be saved. John was fully persuaded. He lived his whole life like that. He went into the wilderness before the Christ was revealed. He led a lot of people and put them in a position to follow Christ. He was willing to go to prison, and he was willing to have his head chopped off because he was fully persuaded that he was saved by faith alone. He was fully persuaded that tribulation was going to be part of the journey. And he was fully persuaded that anybody who would put their faith in God, he wrote it, John chapter 3, 16. He sent his only begotten son that nobody would have to perish, that everyone could have eternal life, and everybody already has the key. Stand with me. I'm going to share this last scripture. We're going to worship. I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to respond this morning. Before the worship team even comes, I want you guys to just kind of be with us right now. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says this. Think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Why is that important as we get ready to do this altar call? God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. What I believe with all my heart is that you can consider that measure of faith your own individual key. Everybody got the key. Everybody has the measure. You know how much the measure actually is when you talk about measurement, right? How much flour do you need to put in? How much water? How many eggs, right? You're talking about a measure. The measure of faith is the exact amount required for you to open the door. It might be more for me than you. It might be more for her than him. But it's the right measure. It's the perfect key. It's the one that only unlocks your door. It's the one that you say, I can't even put this into the keyhole unless I believe there is a key and I believe there is a keyhole and I have faith to believe that when I open it, I'll walk into the grace of God. What Martin Luther was doing here with the 95 Thesis, it was just groundbreaking. He was saying, listen, we are preventing people from getting into heaven. We are preventing people from walking into a relationship with Christ because of all these things that we have put on top of it. Grace alone, faith alone. I'm going to ask Jerry if you can hit the lights. I'm going to play a song, and I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to respond. Just, just, uh, just bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. Let this be about you and you alone. I said earlier that salvation is, it's just about you. This church thing that we do, we come together, but it's really a personal and intimate thing that you enter into. I want to ask you, if you're here, I want you to consider crossing the line of faith if you've never done it before. You've heard of God. You know who he is. You've heard the stories. You've been to church probably plenty of times. Don't be one who thinks they're saved, but they're not. Or who knows they're not, but they, they want it, and you're so close, you're here, you keep coming. Use the key, use the measure of faith that God has given you. It opens a door that only you can open. The grace is already there. 
The price has already been paid. All you have to do is say, I believe in you, Jesus, and I want to enter in. The heads are bowed. The eyes are closed. I'm telling you, it doesn't have anything added to it. You don't have to do any works. It's not like that. It's a free gift. Grace alone. But it costs faith alone. If that's you, you got the key. <laughs> Only you can open it. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Enter into it. Amen. I see you. Thank you, Lord. I see you, brother. Anybody else? Bow your heads. Close your eyes. It's about you and the Lord this morning. Anybody else? You want to enter in. You want to cross the line of faith. You already have the measure. God gave it to all of us. All you have to do is use it. Anybody else this morning willing to cross that line of faith, enter into the grace of God, truly be saved by his work and not by your works? Anybody else? Just raise your hand right where you are this morning. Hallelujah, Lord. Amen. I see you, sis. Anybody else? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. For those three, I'm going to invite everybody that wants to respond, but I'm going to call those three in just a second. For the rest of us, I want to pray for you. If you are a worker, if you are a laborer, if you are doing things in the kingdom, if you are active, if you believe in going to church, if you know in your heart that you are one day going to be a laborer, you want to enter into ministry, I want to pray for you this morning here at the altar that you never confuse that work with earning right standing with God. That you always keep them separate. You know that you're right with God. You know that he loves you. You know that you're saved. You know that you can never lose that salvation and your labors and your work, the things that you do for God, they're separate. They're just the natural product of entering into the grace of God through faith alone. It's like breathing in oxygen and exhaling that carbon dioxide. It's going to happen. But I don't, want them to, I don't want them to mingle together. I don't want you to feel like you're earning something or you're working for something. You already have everything that you need. So, Jerry, you can turn that up. The altars are open. If you, if you raise your hand for salvation, if you're a laborer and you want to keep those things separate, just come to the altar, please, and let's pray for just a moment. Hallelujah, Lord. Christ, you're risen.